0: Hello welcome to the Press Gallery the Edmonton Journal's Politics Podcast. I am your host, Emma Graney, and this is the From the Ashes edition. With me today, we have my fellow legislative reporter, Stuart Thompson. Hey. How you doing?
1: Uh, great. Wiggling
0: your chair around there. You, gotta you comfortable, get comfortable now? All right, good. In for the long haul. We have education reporter extraordinaire, Janet French. Good morning. How are you? Um, I'm good. It's nice to have you here. Yeah, yeah nice yeah, to be is. here. It's very good. Yeah. Well and uh, Graham Thompson. <laughs> <laughs> the millennial.
2: <Yes>. Finally, <laughs> I think the best for last.
0: So, this edition, we're going to be talking about, of course, the one-year anniversary of the Fort McMurray wildfire. Given that it was the biggest national disaster in Canadian history, natural disaster rather in Canadian history. Also, from rebuilding from the ashes, though, is AFSC, the Agriculture Financial Services Corporation, uh, which got a new board this week. Lucky, lucky Crown Corporation that it is. Also, we're going to talk about the teachers' agreement, which was, of course, it was a bit worrisome for the province, I suppose, trying to reach that, but it's reached something now. Huzzah. Uh, But let's get started with the Fort McMurray wildfire. Janet, the reason I've dragged you in here today, you poor, poor soul, is that you actually went up to Fort Mac uh, to see how everything was going. I did, and I went with
3: Keith. Mm-hmm. Uh, Keith Gerine is another reporter, and photographer Greg Sotham, who is filming this edition. Lucky Greg. Yay, Greg. And Ian Kuserak, another photographer, and also David Staples, a columnist, went up. We were there probably. Road yeah, pretty much. Uh, three weeks ago, uh, and collectively spent probably more than a week up there, and uh, checked out to see how the rebuilding was going, sort of both physically and emotionally and mentally.
0: Did, did you go up during the fire?
3: I personally I, I have asthma, so so I wasn't Man. going up when it was really smoky, but I went up after during the recovery. So the end of May last year, I was one of the first people to go
0: back in the city. So what was your gut feeling up there in Folk Murray? What was the what was the vibe?
3: Uh the vibe really depends who you're talking to. It it seems like each situation is so individual. And we talked to some people with some really harrowing stories and others who Say, you know, for 85 to 90% of the city, it's sort of, if they didn't lose anything and they managed to clean the ashes and the mess out of their house and buy a new coffee maker and throw the food out in their fridge, like it's business as usual. Uh, for for many
0: people, though, it is certainly not business as usual. You mentioned that about some people have some harrowing stories. Are, are people kind of mentally recovered, do you think, from this? Again, it really seems to depend
3: on um, on the experience they had that day And um, just their, it may have been their pre-existing level of anxiety. Some people I was talking to said they still, they still tear up and they still choke up when they talk about the evacuation day and what they went through on that day, the way they felt, what they thought was going to happen. I think um, there was, when it looks as frightening as it did that day, there was a lot of catastrophization going on in their minds. And so there we still I brought tissues (laughs) everywhere, uh, expecting some tears, and we certainly did get some. So one woman, you know, I'd actually met up with her to have her explain to me the damage to her house, A, a piece of heavy equipment busted through the sidewall of her house when they were plowing down her neighbor's house to create a firewall. Uh, And so now her house is, it's a year later, she still can't live in it, still got a big sign on the front door saying like, you know, unfit for habitation. And the insurance companies can't decide exactly how damaged or how stable the house is, whether it should be raised, whether it should stay. Um, and so she's living in an apartment with her three kids and her husband, and they just don't know what's going to happen to their house in Abbasan. But but even though that is stressful for her, what really gets her is just the imagery of that evacuation day and her collecting her child from school and this, you know, this being smoke everywhere and her daughter just being kind of like, are we going to piano lessons, mom? <laughs> and she's like, no, honey, we're not. Uh, and being separated from her husband and talking on the phone and, you know, kind of getting really, you know, gibbering over the phone sort of semi-coherently to try and figure out where they were going to meet up and how they were going to get the whole family out. And I think she says, you know, she's point blank. She just says, like, I have PTSD. I still still worry about this. She won't sit around a campfire. Um, You know, barbecues are okay. She can't, she can't handle the sight of smoke in the distance when there's a controlled burn in town. She's incredibly worried about uh the forest fire season coming up so so for some it's it's like it was yesterday i
0: think yeah now Stuart, you actually looked at the preparations for the wildfire this year right yeah do you think the province took on some extra like in light of fort mcmurray i kind of feel like they would have had to have done something more
1: yeah they uh, it, it's they have definitely done more they have a program called the fire smart program which mm. they have uh massively boosted that funding and right, that because
0: they cut that in 2016 yeah, they, they cut that a little bit
1: yeah they, I, I can't remember if they cut FireSmart, smart but they definitely cut the length of contracts with water bombers and then when things started to go south last year they immediately changed that because they caught a lot of flack for that um but they have um massively boosted FireSmart, smart which is prevention that's going into communities and doing education and doing um you know smart things that stop fire from getting into cities um, so they have done that but I you know when I was writing that story I talked to some of the people who are fighting the fire and they said you know that fire it was beyond resources very quickly and he's th- this is um, one of the owners of one of these companies and he was saying you know this is just mother nature there are times when we can't do anything and I totally understand the people I used to live out in White Court which is also just surrounded by forest and it is very intimidating when you look around and you think, I, I can imagine how this would go. And these people in Fort McMurray have seen it happen and, you know, it's not uh, unheard of for a wild forest to start again in the same place or around the same place. So, uh, I totally get it and the province is doing what it can, but the scary thing to me is that there is a point at which there's nothing you can do except just fight it and try to manage it.
3: One thing they have done is, I forget the exact number, I think it's 40 kilometers worth of um, forest against the edges of the city that they have since plowed down, like bulldozed completely. And it's it's a quite a sizable buffer. I mean, it. I'm bad at guessing meters, maybe like... 50 meters or 100 meters away from houses and roads. And if you look at a map, there's just a, they, they, there's this map that the regional municipality has put online of just every, every place where the forest could have come close to Fort McMurray, there's <laughs> red lines. There's still kind of a forested trail system that goes through the center of town that appears to be relatively uh, unscathed from that program. But, um, uh, you know, Sarah O'Donnell, who was our editor, was grew up in Fort McMurray and said, you know, if you had tried to do that five years ago, there would have been an outcry. And, uh, you know, nobody is decrying the clear cut <laughs> yeah. now. I mean, I think they really understand.
0: Graham, I want to ask you about the, um, now, politically for the NDP. They're heading up there, right? Isn't Rachel next, Notley heading up?
2: <clears throat> yeah, she is next week. But Wednesday is the actual official anniversary date. It's May 3rd, the day that, um, I guess, it, it really hit the city. Actually, it's May 2nd. I was, I was up there for the fire last year. I was up there May, May 3rd. Um, Monday was the evacuation started. I was up there the following, following morning we headed up. Um, I was up there watching what was actually happening. And at the time, you could see how Notley was becoming, like really grew into the role as premier there. Because it was days, like literally, I was up in a car, middle of nowhere, we couldn't get um, reception on the cell phone. The internet connection was basically uh, non-existent. So we would listen to the radio, CBC radio, to the premier's news conferences twice a day. We got updates that way because no one, we, there's no one up there having a news conference on the side of the road. We would listen to Notley in the media, and you could see she was doing a really good job, actually, um, putting out information, plus actually being the face of Alberta, the government, to help people. So it became a, a, a point last year, really became an important um, watershed, if I can call it that, in her premiership. People who don't even like her as an NDP premier, I think, had respect for her. And how she was handling that crisis last year and she was up there a lot um you know during just after the fire um even during the fire to have news conferences uh one or two of them when i was up there but next week she plans on going up i think it's on tuesday now we're thinking of going up we might not actually go because there's not a a big commemoration um the premier's office others have told me that the that the town or the city of fort mcmurray Is making a point of keeping it all low-key. There'll be one event at 11 o'clock in the morning on Wednesday, and then that's it. There'll be nothing. There's no no big celebration that the town is coming back. It was very much low-key, I've been told. Not a lot going on up there. I think that that the town council, city council, doesn't want to make a big deal about this. People have lived through this. Um, There's a sense of fatigue over, I think, the media in there as well. They don't want a big event to attract even more media into Fort McMurray.
0: Won't media just
2: turn up, though? I don't know if there'll be a a lot of media. um, The thing is, we've done a lot of the the one-year anniversary pieces um, that Janet's mentioned. That day, there'll be some media in town, but they're not not making a point of trying to attract media. Mm. Now, there will be media there, obviously, but they're not saying, come on up, media. Uh, And so there's one event I've been told, and that's it.
3: Yeah, what Melissa Blake said was that... She's they wanted, the mayor, right? Sorry, yes. Melissa Blake is the mayor of the regional municipality of Wood Buffalo. She she said that they wanted to have something where they felt like everybody was welcome, that last, sort of lasts all day, and it starts at like 6 o'clock in the morning with yoga or meditation or something, and it's in this Riverside Park and goes until evening time, but huh, no fireworks, obviously. Um, but uh, it's people work shift work, so people are available during funny times of day, and uh, also they didn't want to have it somewhere really central and in your face because some people just aren't ready or don't want to talk about it or, like Graham said, have fatigue. But then she said, like, other people really need this. They still really want to talk about it. And, and that's one thing I definitely observed up there is even if I was asking somebody about their house or um, their, you know, business, conditions of business, the local business right now, everybody wanted to tell me their story, like what mm. they did on May 3rd, what happened that day. And it's um, it's almost like... A rite of passage or something, you know, it's like, where were you when 9-11 happened? Yeah. It's, yeah. it's yes. their version of that.
1: It's funny okay. thing about this job is, you know, when we go to crime scenes or disasters or something, people, I think, understandably, talk about how reporters are vultures and they're preying on that kind mm-hmm. of stuff. And I think people would be surprised, though, how often you'll go and talk to someone whose family member has been through something awful, whether it's a fire or, you know, a murder or an assault or something. Sometimes they just desperately want to talk to you and tell you about that person. And I think everyone kind of deals with these things differently. But I'm sure as Janet and Keith were finding, some people just will talk your ear off and it's really good for them to do that.
0: It's like therapy.
2: Yeah, when I found last year um, talking to people as well, no one said I won't talk to you. In fact, they wanted to talk. Um, also, they, they also wanted to talk about how people being, were being supportive of each other. Uh, last year on the highway, um, there was cars that were breaking down. Of course, leaving Fort McMurray, they ran out of gas, and there was people from first local First Nations, local Métis um, settlements that actually filled up a pickup truck with cans of gasoline in the back, and food, and water, and diapers. And, it was smart. and they were thinking, yeah, and they parked these things, big signs saying free, you know, water and, and food, whatever, and people were, and gasoline's the most important thing, they come over and people were so grateful. And so they would talk about how grateful they were, the help they were getting. Um, and I, I got to love that the diapers was people who yeah. think, think of that. And it was really important. If you're in a car, it's stuck in traffic because the, the whole convoy is, is trapped because they can't get it's a huge traffic jam. You have a baby on board and you got in that car and you have no diapers. Diapers are really important. So <laughs> uh, people were actually so grateful for the help they were getting from other human beings who came to their aid in this awful, awful time.
0: When you're talking about that kind of one-year anniversary thing, and the, in Australia we had these giant bushfires in 2009 in Victoria and 128 people were actually killed because it swept through too quickly and people weren't able to be um, informed about it quickly enough. Uh, it was a real problem. But the difference there was a the huge level of fatalities, entire towns wiped out. Like It was absolutely devastating. But the difference there was there actually were changes made in terms of telling people about the, about the danger, about informing people about what might happen, about getting people out of, of fires. So, the one year there was more a reflection of what have we learned, what changes have we made. Whereas this, as Stuart, you kind of said, you know, it was beyond resources, right? Mm-hmm. It was just massive, and they got everyone out, and there weren't there was the there was the one crash, an accident, an accident, yeah, a car but accident. I mean, yeah, comparatively, it
3: was. Um, Which, uh, if you see Fort McMurray, is amazing because there is nowhere that you can't see the forest except yeah. maybe the middle of downtown. Yeah. A lot
2: of ways to get out either. Yeah, yeah. that one highway, well, south and north.
0: So AFSC. The Agricultural Financial Services Corporation. I'm pretty sure that's it. Agricultural services, finances. Anyway, <laughs> AFSC. That's all really yeah. Didn't you cover
2: the news conference? Yeah. Look, <laughs>
0: I've Rams. had a bad week. Okay. I, and you have. So just leave me alone. Um, <laughs> stop picking on <laughs> well, me, Graham. Yeah. Always um, picking on me. Pick, I'm always picking pick, on you. Pick.
2: So go ahead and tell us about this. You were there for the news conference.
0: <laughs> oh my god. So AFSC, huh? of course, in June. The what does, entire does that stand for. Oh, I, I, I swear to God. Fate, fate, fate. <laughs> So, in June, the inter- provinces' internal auditor had a look at those. They got an anonymous tip from someone in the province saying how there was a lot of misspending and some dodgy dealing going on. Uh, the auditor had a look, the provincial internal auditor had a look. Sure enough, found out that that was exactly the case. And as a result, the entire board was laid off. And then three of the top executives were suspended with pay, I might add. Um, So it's taken them this long, but now they finally have a new board and they can get on with replacing the uh, three top executives who had to leave their posts, shall we say. Now, they were actually only recently stopped being paid, though. This year, in fact. So they still sat pretty. For at least six months, more well ten months. One of them. Were uh, oh, they getting
2: paid? How much?
0: Well, the former boss, president, man, uh, Brad Clack, <laughs> he was. He took home seven hundred and ten thousand dollars and change in twenty fifteen, in pay and benef- and other benefits. So it was something like six hundred and six hundred and something thousand in pay, and then a hundred something thousand in uh, other. benefits benefits. Now,
2: didn't the government ask for the RCMP to, to yeah. investigate this? They did. And and what's happening with
0: RCMP that? are looking into it. They. I spoke with them yesterday and they were kind of like, yeah, we can't give you a lot of details, but we are investigating it still. And yes, this can take a very long time. They said. So, so they no were,
1: if I remember correctly, they were expensing a lot of stuff: travel and booze they shouldn't have. Is that right?
0: Yeah, travel, booze, um, golf course fees, uh, hockey tickets. It was all specifically around one broker as well. And the thing with AFSC is they provide insurance. Now, as part of providing insurance, they have to buy insurance for their insurance. If that makes sense, it's called reinsurance. So a broker was kind of um, providing that, and then they were. There was a lot of travel air expenses that was completely unnecessary because the brokers come up to try and win their business and then um, this particular broker had bid for a provincial contract and got it and then ended up, um, they ended up paying him instead of the $100,000 here they were going to, or the hun- $1 million or whatever, they paid like three times that. So it was just this kind of it left a bad taste in a lot of people's and mouths.
2: Th- this is all taxpayer money. This is government this is money. So money. This is all taxpayer money. This is your the, money, the, the, money, friends. One of the government uh, agencies, board and, boards, and commissions that they're yep. looking into. So this is your tax dollars, yeah. not at work. And this is, yep.
1: this is maybe the... I mean, we saw this during the budget. So the government has also capped all of the um, salaries for the CEOs of these agencies, boards, and commissions. And yep. when we went to the budget... Uh, the budget morning, we picked up our copy of the budget and the speech, and like the first thing they were bragging about was that they capped all these CEO things, which I think it saved I think tens of thousands of dollars. The perks that they uh, so they cut out they cut out some perks like no golf club more memberships. golf club memberships. <laughs> yeah. So
0: cracking down on that
1: didn't save a lot of money, but I, they seem to think that it's a big political winner because they mention it all the time. And I think this is sort of what they're getting at. This board was a bunch of Tory appointees they all came there when the Tories were in power they were uh, enriching themselves or they were alleged to be re- enriching themselves and getting all these perks and
0: well it was the, it was mainly the board got sacked because they okayed the expenses that the executives were claiming yeah yeah so and, and so it was the-
1: approved the salary to exactly which seems like a lot
0: Well, now they're going to be getting paid more like $250,000 rather than 600 and something thousand dollars in salary. And
1: what they did do with this um, review of the CEO pay was they looked across Canada and sort of normalized it along the lines of how everybody else does it. So before that, it was the board who would say... This guy, Clack, seems like a good dude. Let's give him $600,000, and that was essentially
0: it. Like, you know, I'm a really good person, so, <laughs> I mean, you know, if Post Media would just be like, hey, that Emma Granny, she seems all right, yeah. and want to give me $600,000. She seems like 000, a good Tory. <laughs> <laughs> sure, let's go with that, yeah. That'd be really nice. I yeah. would appreciate that. Yeah. Some free hockey tickets, you know, booze on the taxpayer's dime. be great, wouldn't it? Anyway, we can't all live... <laughs> such lives. Uh, but now anyway, so AFSC is obviously going to have to rebuild its, um, its senior leadership there. And Janet, we do have you here as well with the teachers agreement. Teachers. Teachers, because mm-hmm. you're our education reporter. Am I? Yeah. Cool. <laughs>
3: um, the teachers got have a tentative contract deal. So they have been bargaining for about a year-ish. So last spring, they went down and sat at the table this is the first time that they have bargained in this manner before where there's two sets of tables there's a provincial table and then a whole bunch of local tables where they bargain sort of well, i don't know if i don't want to use secondary but are less, tables, less expensive issues <laughs> are they separate rooms or are the tables in the same room uh the tables are in different rooms mm. different cities even <laughs> oh. magical uh, so the deal that they have obtained provincially tentatively uh, includes no new salary increases for two years which is interesting because in their last four year deal they got zero 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 and two percent plus a lump sum in their final year that which would have been the last school year so they've been with other contracts since last august um, the new deal does include however 75 million dollars for something called a classroom improvement fund and i can go into more details about that in a second. Uh, It also includes a cap on assignable hours, which sounds very jargony, but what it means is uh, the school board can tell you not only to go teach students, but they can tell you you have to attend this many staff meetings and you have to supervise recess and blah, blah, blah. So now certain school districts uh, had a cap on these number of hours and some wouldn't even talk about it, they say. So it's now 1200 hours. So Ideally, then teachers would have more time for things like marking and lesson planning. And the other interesting part about this contract is it has something called a Me Too clause, which means if the United Nurses of Alberta, if the Health Sciences Association of Alberta workers, or, and I think there's a bunch of AUPE units or groups, if any of them get a global wage increase or a lump sum in their new deals, the teachers get that same deal retroactively.
0: Dang, that's pretty sweet. Y'all. Yeah.
3: So I was trying to figure out yesterday how strange or how uh, how usual or unusual this is, and the uh, the professor that I talked to from Athabasca University said. Uh, he hasn't seen a lot of it in big union contracts he like said, this. He said,
1: it's not very usual, I think. <laughs> I really like that quote in your story. Well, uh,
3: because I, well, the problem was that he used some colorful language. I actually had to say, uh, can you re-say that sentence without the F word so I can use it as a quote?
2: So tell us what he actually said then. Uh, <laughs> Come on, tell us what he said. I want to know.
3: He, re- he He replaced it with the word crummy or crappy or anyway. It was all good. <laughs> anyway.
1: And on the other not quote I... It's very
3: usual. It's like saying it's less bad. Yeah. <laughs> well, because I said, how usual is this? So he said, it's not very usual. <laughs> That's fair
1: enough. And the other quote I, that I... That I think you did a really good job of explaining this because we had a quick talk in the morning about this. Oh, yeah. Um, and I, I really liked the way the story turned out. Um, but the other person, I think it was the nurses who said, usually this is... Um, but in the same profession, they do a me too clause. So it's something that is kind of odd to see it compared to completely different professions. Profession
3: between profession. And I, again, I like haven't had a ton of time to dig into this because it just kind of showed up yesterday. But it, it would be I'm wondering if anyone will contact me today and say, yeah, actually, this was in our contractor. I know it's happened in the BCTF has had this contract before, or this this clause in their contract before, because it caused some issues in 2014.
2: It's really interesting, because we're looking at first the teachers, we thought this is the precedent-setting contract for all the other public sector unions, that the, the teachers, AUPE, you name it. And it's not really precedent-setting, because if the teachers um, are saying, okay, this is zero percent increase, but if nurses get something, we get it too. So in a sense, this might not be a precedent-setting thing at all because nurses can still push for something more because they're not, in a sense, stabbing teachers in the back. Um, of course, one argument is you could say, well, nurses now know if they get a 2% increase and if all of a sudden it costs more for the government, every teacher gets 2% more, it's going to be more at more debt for the province, but nurses aren't going to think like that. I think this is more a case where this is not a precedent-setting um, um uh, bargaining uh, outcome, but what's interesting though I found is that I was using the term wage freeze, and it's not a wage freeze. And this was interesting Wednesday night. I was trying to help Janet out; she was doing a great job. But I thought I'd make some telephone calls with some teachers I know because we couldn't get the details of the tentative contract. They had given these details like to forty five thousand teachers, <laughs> but they wouldn't talk to the ATA wouldn't talk to us about it. We thought this is ridiculous. So I began calling teachers to get some of the details. And we're getting some of the details, not through the ATA, but through teachers. And they have their own slant on it. And I talked to a couple of senior teachers who said, this is a wage freeze. Well, it's not technically a wage freeze. There's a grid system. And if you want to explain it a bit more, Janet, but basically it means if you're a a more junior teacher, you do get bumped up the grid over the years. As you gain experience, you get more money over certain steps up the grid. At the top, that's it. You can go no further. So I talk to these senior guys who are not getting anything. There's it's a wage freeze. If you're a junior teacher, there's still that, you know, few percent. Yeah, you still
3: progress through the the grid. So each teacher is given kind of like a classification, you know. I don't know if it's a code or a level or like one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, whatever. So and that all depends on what job you have and how much experience you have and what training you have and what what you're teaching. Like I think probably like a French immersion teacher or a specialty teacher might have more value. Uh, you know grid wise than that um, was
0: in inverted commas Kai, yeah. <laughs> <for listeners. laughs> air quotes. quotes yeah, yeah. okay
3: uh, so uh, so I think that they might be more handsomely compensated and also uh, if you look at Edmonton Public's grid this is the other complication it's that because the contracts were previously negotiated with each individual school board every school board has their own grid. So there's no, like, one provincial oh. grid that I, that I know of. I, I need to double-check that. It um, kind uh, of makes sense, though, right? Because, I yeah. mean, if you're in a big
0: city, your costs are higher than if you're in a... Yeah, country. and even, like,
3: teachers in Fort McMurray, they get, like, an isolation top-up or something. They get some sort of special pay for being way... Out there um, to try and attract more teachers to that area. So, uh, so yes. Yeah, so, yeah, as you move year to year, you move between the grid with experience, and then also with various other factors that the ATA determines. You move sort of down the grid, and your salary can improve that way too. So, there's still there's still movement there. Yeah. Well, that's
0: pretty normal in union agreements that you are kind of right rage- Oh, the, just dropping my pen, throwing it all <laughs> on the desk here. That you are kind of like in that grid system. Yeah, I totally. Yeah. it, it just it. means
3: that they're they're not increasing any of the numbers in that grid yeah Yeah, but
0: people can still move within the grid exactly i would
1: like i've always taken a wage freeze to mean that you wouldn't be frozen on the grid just that the grid freezes where it is um the pay grades anyways do and this is i i just find this fascinating that me too clause um because we as we all know there's a lot of contracts to be negotiated and as graham said there goes your precedent but what this also means is that puts a hell of a lot of pressure on the next negotiation because you're not just negotiating with the nurses now. You're negotiating retroactively with the teachers. And then you move on to the next one with government Alberta employees. And I, who knows what will happen, but if you're the nurses, you're kind of thinking, well, we me too on the me too clause because <laughs> if we take a wage freeze, then you go on to the government Alberta employees and then you have some money left over because of all the wage freezes we don't want to get screwed over. So the, the pressure on the, the government means they're going to have to negotiate essentially the same deal with each of these uh, negotiators. And at that point, I, I think what that means is the um, the assigned time thing is very interesting because when you get to a point where you have no money, and not only do they have no money, but now they're dealing with this retroactive problem, you start to find creative solutions to how you can give people something. And I bet, I don't know this for sure, but maybe Janet can tell us, but I bet if you talk to teachers, the assigned time thing is probably something they've been complaining about for years, maybe even decades. And I know that every profession has something like this where it's not to do with wages. It's to do with uh, workplace issues, workload, hours worked, that kind of thing. Uh, And when you don't have money, you move on to those things. And I, I know the government is thinking, we have to negotiate you know wage freezes if we can we will give them something else we're going to we're going to be really creative and we're going to be really generous on all the other things so i would expect that to happen with all these other things because at this point with this clause there they just can't they can't negotiate any raises because they can't afford to now
3: Yeah, the assigned time comes out of a workload study that they had completed, the ATA completed with the help of an independent contractor in 2015. And they found that the average teacher is working about 44 hours a week and the average admin working about 46 hours a week. And that's including if you average in the summer months. So if you just look at the 10 months of the year that they're... Um, like in schools, it's those numbers are higher than that. And it works out to be about the uh, typical teachers working nearly 2,000 hours a year. I don't know how many hours a year I work. I don't count, but um, it's... <laughs> so they're they're saying... I think they're concerned about a blowback saying like, oh, teachers, you get the summer off and now you want to limit how many hours you work. And they're saying the HEA's angle is no, no, no. It's not that we want to work fewer hours. It's that we want to spend those hours differently. And I feel like some teachers say that they feel like they're being given busy work or too much paperwork or too much admin or too going to too many meetings. or There's also professional development that's mandated by school boards, so it's not the teacher doesn't choose it, the boards choose it, and the ATA is, doesn't like that very much. So they're saying this will just free up more of our time to do things that like planning better lessons for the classroom.
2: The thing of the timing, it's a two-year contract, so it's going to expire in uh, 2017 2018 yeah what,
3: uh, august 2018 2018 yeah it's, yes. it's september right. 2016 to the 18th right yeah.
2: which means that right before the election right
3: i don't think that's a coincidence
2: um so
0: <laughs> not a coincidence well, <laughs> not the,
2: the, the, the election is two years from now which means that they'll, they'll be in contract talks two years from now and so teachers i'm, I'm thinking are, are thinking hey um That'd be a good time to get a good contract yeah. from the, the government. And so and the that's the go teachers, part of, of how course. they're
3: trying to sell this to teachers is like, you guys, we know it's zero and zero, but we're going to be renegotiating again in a year. So, in two years. And the economy could change then. So we'll ask for more money then. And
2: there'll be a, a an election coming up. Yeah. And, and that's a, the that's a time to ask for more money because... You got this NDP government over a barrel in two years. Yeah,
1: and actually that's what um, I spoke to a former uh, head of the AUPE who said, you know, all these creative solutions are well and good, but everyone I know who's one of my members back in the day, they would turn to the page with the wage increase. That's the first thing they look at. So if you're in the union, you have to do a charm offensive. You have to sell this deal. And that's probably how they're selling it.
0: Did you just call it a charm offensive? <laughs> yeah. I love oh that. my God, that's a fantastic term. Yeah, it's a pr- it's a pretty it's common, a, it's a pretty I've common term. I've never heard that. <laughs> obviously, no one's ever applied it to well, me. Well, obviously, it's a I'm common term if you using it, right? Um,
2: yes. Emma's so, turned on a charm is, offensive <laughs> again. I did talk to, uh, speaking of these senior teachers who are not happy with this contract, because again, they see it as a wage freeze, there's nothing there for their pensions. But also I talked to a few, and one was saying the $75 for the Classroom Enhancement million.
3: Fund. <laughs> 75 million. $75 That's
2: right. It wasn't $75. It actually got the million behind it. So this, this money, he, well, one guy was saying this could have been given as a wage increase to us. We're getting yeah, no wage increase. Therefore, teachers are subsidizing the Classroom Enhancement Fund. Uh, or whatever, that which fun? they
3: say they're doing anyway, because it's it's all about like for example, um, I got a note home this week saying uh, we're out of tissues. And we don't have any tissues left for the rest of the year. So can you please send two boxes of tissues to nah. class? Which I did. Uh, and so so a lot of the stuff that teachers are paying for out of their pocket. Um, and But it goes even further. The, the Classroom Enhancement Fund is supposed to deal with what's called diversity or complexity. I'm doing the air quotes again. And you can't see. Sorry. <laughs> uh, complexity of the classroom, which in English means uh, more students with Uh, disabilities, more students with um, learning issues, uh, students living in poverty, students that are hungry, and uh, also English language learners, which make up in Edmonton like a quarter of the student population. So it's huge. So teachers are saying, I'm I'm pulled in so many different directions. So this classroom improvement fund is supposed to just give this pool of money. And so there's going to be within each school district, if the contract is approved, uh, there will be a group of teachers and board reps, equal numbers on a little committee who will decide how to spend their allotment. And so I think Edmonton Public gets 10 million of the 75 in Edmonton Catholic. I Forget the number—it's four or five million or something nah, like that. They get some cash. It's about half what Edmonton Public gets, and so there'll be this committee that decides how shall we spend this money. Um, but oh, if you think about how many teachers or how many classroom aides that buys, and then there's you know two hundred public schools in Edmonton and another 100-ish Catholic. You know, how, how much of an, an impact will it make? I'm not really sure.
0: Yeah. My mom was a teacher for 40 years. She was forever buying things for her classroom. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. She would, and Well, she would always make me sit at the, like, make my brother and I basically be like child labor here and just like come in and you need to do the cutting out. You need to do all this tracing because she was like a little kid teacher, like grade one <laughs> through three. So, yeah, we were always doing stuff. I loved helping my mom if you're listening nice (laughs) Um, uh, so we have to move on now to our regular segment good stuff from the gallery Stuart what do you have for us buddy
1: Uh, I am going to go into the deep well of Trump reporting Um, this is a fascinating piece in the Washington Post by uh, Ashley Parker and Robert uh, Costa it is titled Everybody Tunes In Inside Trump's Obsession with Cable TV and (laughs) it is a really fascinating piece about how this White House works and the, the opening of the story is about how Trump was telling reporters that he can't fire Sean Spicer because Sean Spicer gets great ratings. He's <laughs> up there every day and people are tuning in uh, and it's, it's just great TV. So If
3: you're spoofed on SNL, you're winning.
1: Yeah. Uh, so it's fascinating and it is really fascinating how much these people are trying to get themselves on television so they can talk to their boss in a way that will be effective. It's a great piece.
0: Janet, what you got for us?
3: Sorry, I'm still reeling from stewards. Um, (laughs) I always bring an education story. So uh, last week, there was a series published by the Baltimore Sun called Bridging the Divide which is tackling one of America's most interesting school issues right now, which is segregation. And it goes into the Maryland area issue of school segregation and how, like, how is it that black kids ended up mostly in certain sets of schools and white kids ended up in mostly other sets of schools? And how do you, do you try to force to reintegrate? And how does that affect the way resources are allocated? And, but it just, it goes into explain it, it, nobody purposefully did this and it goes into some of the issues behind why that exists and how do you fix it and do you fix it and who wants it fixed and who doesn't want it
0: fixed it's a super complex issue down the street yeah States. it's really interesting yeah, it's crazy um i am going to recommend a piece from the saskatoon star phoenix by yeah. betty ann adam Woo! yes janet used to work there um she's lovely this
3: made me cry i i it was was so incredible to read that because I've heard snippets from her I worked there for 11 years with Betty Ann and uh heard snippets of her story over the years and when I read that I felt like a jerk because I've you know listened to her talk about it and you know she told me like right from early on I used to sit next to her it would be like oh yeah I you know I I was a foster child or had a foster family and then I kind of was there she was finding all her relatives like hey I found my brother and it's like what do you mean you've you found your brother, like you're 50. <laughs> you know? Yeah, it's, a, it was, it, it, it's just so removed from, yeah. from the sort of middle-class privileged reality that we live, that it was just fascinating. And now, now that I, there's a
0: documentary about it. That yeah. That she's writing about here. Yeah. It's called how I lost my mother, found my family, recovered my identity. So she writes about being seized as a toddler, meeting her siblings for the first time, which of course she was telling Janet about. And she was actually, she was part of Canada's um, 60s scoop. And she talks about meeting her mom, and um, oh yeah, it gave me goose. I'm getting goosebumps now, and I'm just thinking about it. It's really, it is an incredibly powerful piece. Um, Fantastic, yeah. I cried. Yeah, and I don't cry easily. No, I'm dead inside, but I had feelings. <laughs> uh, yeah, Graham, what have you got for us?
2: Um, before we came in, I heard you talking about North Korea, and
0: <laughs> as it happens, I was talking about North you Korea. You were,
2: and I'm, I'm, it's a fascinating topic these days of course because we may end up in a nuclear war um which is why i was <clears> talking about north korea but th- there's um my good stuff is actually i sent you a link to uh, another podcast who knew there's another podcast what? out there
0: that it seems unlikely i enough. know
2: it's uh, reuters the news agency it's called war college and the last one or the most recent one um it was an expert on north korea and he's talking about how the media is getting a lot of stuff wrong regarding what's actually happening now with North Korea. It's not just led by some madman who wants to destroy the world. And he explains uh, in about half an hour really interesting what's actually happening. And that, of course, North, North Korea, by building up its nuclear arsenal, getting missiles that could actually theoretically hit the U.S., it becomes a bargaining chip to Washington saying, You, you want us to dismantle our nuclear capabilities for war? Fine, then remove all of your troops from South Korea. And North Korea's plan has been for decades to unify North and South, get rid of the American troops, they can start working on that unification. And so he was explaining really interesting stuff, even quickly, small stuff. Like he reads, he says, different kinds of propaganda. And in North North Korea propaganda, if it's on really glossy, high-quality paper versus really low-quality garbage paper read the garbage paper quality because that gets distributed to everybody in the country. Glossy stuff is for the foreign media. Oh,
0: that's interesting. And
2: it's really interesting. So I thought this is actually putting things in a lot more context, like much like our our own podcast does. Very much Politics.
0: like that, yeah. That's what we do here at the Press Gallery Podcast. Thank you guys so much for joining me. Stuart, Janet, Graham and Greg here to film some of it and put it online at edmontonjournal.com where you can find all of the past episodes of the Press Gallery Podcast. You can also subscribe to our SoundCloud channel, iTunes and TuneIn Radio. Hopefully you'll join us again this time next week at the Press Gallery.